the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to a new edition of Vatican Insider on what seems to be another scorching weekend in much of the Northern Hemisphere. So just relax for a bit, sip a cool iced drink, and enjoy the news and especially my guest in the interview segment, Jesuit Father Michael Maher. A native of Milwaukee, he's an expert on the Belgium-based Société des Bolandistes, the Society of Bolandists, who, as their website explains, for almost four centuries have been at the forefront of hagiographic research, that is, preparing biographies of saints and ecclesiastical leaders. Father Maher talks about that work, about how to separate fact from legend in a saint's life, the need for scholars to know ancient languages for this work, and what we can learn about societies from reading the lives of the saints. A riveting conversation. The new segment this week is a bit shorter than usual because, as is by now a tradition for Pope Francis in July, he's on what we might call a staycation in the Santa Marta residence, where his work schedule continues, but in a very reduced fashion. Not taking vacations was how he grew up, the Pope said in a La Stampa interview in 2017. The Bergoglio family did not take vacations. We were not rich. Normally, we made it to the end of the month, but not much more. We didn't own a car, and we didn't go on vacation or things like that. So once again this summer, as every summer since his March 2013 election, Pope Francis will not spend any time at the beautiful summer palace at Castel Gandolfo an historic building with magnificent views over Lake Albano, and acres and acres of stupendous gardens. Citizens and business owners have suffered over the years from the papal absence, as Castel Gandolfo was considered, as John Paul had named it, Vatican II. Italy has suffered sweltering heat since May, but the papal apartment, as all of Santa Marta residents, is air-conditioned. Castel Gandolfo and the surrounding hill towns typically have lower temperatures than Rome, and that was often a reason for the papal vacations in the villa. Now, let's look at the news stories of the week. Sunday, July 3rd. At Mass with the Congolese community in Rome, including dozens of priests, on the very day he had been scheduled to preside over Mass at Indolo Airport in Kinshasa, Pope Francis asked for prayers for peace for the wounded nation, and he told Christians, Brothers and sisters, peace begins with us, with you and me, with each person's heart. Amid singing, clapping, and dancing to traditional Congolese music, Pope Francis, presiding at the Liturgy of the Word, celebrated the Zaire use of the ordinary form of the Roman Rite in St. Peter's Basilica. The Liturgy of the Eucharist was presided over by Archbishop Paul Gallagher, Secretary for Relations with States. Later Sunday at the Angelus, Pope Francis reflected on the day's Gospel, and he urged Christians to bear witness to Jesus through mutual respect and brotherly love. He also renewed his appeal for peace in Ukraine and called on the international community to step back from confrontational rhetoric. Monday, July 4th. Pope Francis asked the faithful to join in prayer for the victims of an avalanche triggered by the melting of a glacier in northern Italy. 
A tweet sent from his Twitter account at Pontifex invoked prayers for all those killed and affected by the tragedy on the Marmolada Glacier, in which at least six people died and nine were injured. Also Monday, Pope Francis greeted a delegation of the European Swimming League ahead of the European Aquatics Championships, and he praised the unifying power of sports. Some 11,000 athletes from 52 countries are expected to take part in over 500 competitions in Rome from August 11 to the 21st. The Pope reiterated that sports help cultivate human friendship and fraternity amidst winds of war blowing in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. Also July 4th and 5th, Archbishop Wachowski, Under Secretary for Relations with States, brought the Pope's prayer for a peaceful future in Ukraine to the Ukraine Recovery Conference in Lugano, Switzerland, calling for a commitment to the reconstruction of the war-torn country. He led the Holy See delegation, including the papal representative in Bern, Archbishop Martin Krebs. Tuesday, July 5th, the Holy Father sent two telegrams, one for the death of a friend, Cardinal Claudio Hermes, Archbishop Emeritus of Sao Paulo, Brazil, who died at age 87. Sitting next to Cardinal Bergoglio, who had just been elected Pope on March 13, 2013, Cardinal Hermes told him, do not forget the poor. And the new Pope chose the name of Francis. Pope Francis also sent a telegram to Cardinal Blaise Supich of Chicago for the horrific killings on July 4th of seven people and wounding of over 30 others in Highland Park, a Chicago suburb. Wednesday, July 6th, the Holy Father met with Argentine Father Guillermo Marco, who was in charge of the press office of the Archbishopric of Buenos Aires for 10 years, while Archbishop Bergoglio was the head of the see. A part of the conversation was broadcast on the priest podcast in which the Pope reflected on his personal life. Friday, July 8th, the Vatican announced two September trips for Pope Francis. A visit to Assisi on Saturday, September 24th for the Economy of Francis event in this Umbrian shrine town, and a pastoral visit to Matera on Sunday, September 25th for the conclusion of the 27th National Eucharistic Congress. Those are the week's top news stories, but stay here for my conversation with Father Michael Maher, who talks about the four-century-old society of Valandists, scholars who research and prepare biographies of saints. Have a blessed weekend. WTN, teaching the truth. Not surprised to hear that your words of affirmation, you are so good at that. You find something nice to say to everybody that calls in. That is a real talent and a gift. This particular show was a hook for me on EWTN. I was laid off for a while, and you guys are out there. And so if you want the truth, just dial in EWTN. I love it. EWTN is everywhere. EWTN radio programming is provided free of charge to over 500 domestic and international AM and FM radio stations. It's a great teaching tool for Catholics and non-Catholics alike. For a complete list of EWTN AM and FM stations across America, visit EWTNradio.net. At the bottom of the page, click Affiliates. 
EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. Here's Joan Lewis. Well, welcome to another edition of Vatican Insider with another special guest. In New York in May, at the Path to Peace Foundation Dinner, an event linked to the Holy See Mission to the UN, I met Irene de Saint-Cernin. She's the Director of Philanthropy of the Brussels-Belgium-based Société des Bolandistes, the Society of Bolandists. Well, my first question to her was, who are the Bolandists? And today, my special guest, who's a friend of Irene's, as well as of EWTN's Father Mitch Pacwa, will answer that question for all of us. And that guest is Father Michael Maher. We met recently at the Jesuit General in Rome, not long after his arrival for a month-long stay. So, Father Michael, welcome. Well, welcome, Joan, and I would like to thank you for hosting me uh, on your radio show. Uh, You have many fans in the United States who listen to you, and so it's a great privilege here. And to say a little bit about the Bollandists, I would Bollandists, thank you. The Bollandists, the Bollandista Francais, is that really the project of the Bollandists and the project of EWTN is very similar. It's telling people about our Catholic faith. And so I'd like to thank both you and EWTN and the Bollandists for their great work. So a little bit about how I got involved with the exactly. Bollandists is that uh, first and foremost, um, I'm, I'm a Jesuit priest, but I'm also a scholar. And so I very much respect scholarship and truth-telling. And that's what the Bollandists ultimately do, is they tell truths about the men and women of our faith. And they tell the story of the saints and sanctity. And that, of course, is a tremendous apostolate, especially in today when fake news tends to be prevalent. So telling the truth has always been uh, one of the great apostolates of the Catholic Church. And so I'm very glad to assist the Bollandists in their work in letting people know who they are. Well, where are you from and how did you link up with them? How did I link up? Well, I'm, I'm a Jesuit priest. I entered the Jesuits in the Roaring Seventies, so that would be a whole other interview of life in the Seventies in the Jesuits. Uh, I am a scholar. I, my area is early modern Europe, and uh, Irene Sassenen was looking for someone who perhaps could help tell the Bolandus story in the United States, uh, especially uh, for benefactors. Uh, who could support the work of the Bollandists and their important work of telling the truth about the saints. And so I'll tell you a little story about the Bollandists. When I was a a novice, we were told that when you enter the Jesuits, you're not going to tell your superior what to do. I mean, you you make yourself available by the means of the vow of obedience. But he said there were two exceptions. One, if you wanted to enter the Jesuits to go to the Asian missions, it was if that was the condition that you wanted to enter, that would be the, 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 you would go to the Asian missions, particularly Japan. And the second one is if you wanted to be a Bollandist. Oh my gosh. And I said, well, what's a Bollandist? You know, what, what, I mean, this is a, you know, because they're telling us in the novitiate, you know, you, you're entering and you're making a, a gift of yourself to the church and to the society of Jesus. And, but it had this sort of like precondition. So I said, what's a Bollandist? And I remember my novice master got very serious and he said, 
oh, it's a very difficult life because you have to learn all these languages and all this research and do this. Of course, I had just graduated from high school, barely surviving Latin, and the idea of going into scholarship, I thought, well, I'll cross that one off the list. Yeah. Well, God works in interesting ways. I went on and studied languages. I went on and got a doctorate. I went on and set, you know, spent a lot of my life in research. So I, I have a deep appreciation for people who do scholarly works in the church. Oh, I do too. I do. And of course, you can look around the time that I should be spending. We're in my library, my office, and I just think of the time exploring each one of those, you know, how many hundreds or thousand books do I have? But now the the Bollandists go back like four hundred and some years, right? Yes, <clears throat> they were originally uh, started by a father Enrique uh, Roswitha, and he wanted to start a what he called a Fasti Sanctorum. Fasti goes back to the idea of Ovid in the eighth uh, the year eight A.D. that he writes this book about how the, the Roman gods and different religious uh, feasts occurred on a calendar. So a Fasti, a, a Roman Fasti was a Roman calendar. So this Jesuit then says, well, I want to do one for the saints. Now we have to remember he's writing this around 1600 when there's a lot of accusations about authenticity. One of the core movements of the Reformation was who is retelling the story accurately? So both Protestants and Catholics accused themselves of going off the rails. So there was this great movement in scholarship before, during, and after the Council of Trent, which ended in 1563, to go back to the sources. Because the two principal sources of authenticity uh, during the Reformation, and of course, historians now realize we don't just talk, when we talk about the Reformation, we're talking about a Catholic Reformation that was going on previous to Martin Luther, then what we would call the Protestant Reformation, and then we would talk about the Catholic Reformation, which is a distinct response to specific accusations of Protestantism. But so we talk about history in the age of Reformations, because it was a much more multifaceted reality. So everyone is going back to two primary sources. One is the Bible, and the other is the Church Fathers. And so the, the Bollandists grew up from this idea of going back and writing authentic texts about the Church, Church's saints, particularly the Church Fathers. And this work, your work, of these 400 years, everyone in between, has been described as the science of the saints. Well, very much, because, you know, the word science, when we think of science, we think of test tubes and men in white coats. But science is actually the logical application to data. For example, we talk about the science, theology being a science. And what makes it a science is that you proceed in an ordered, logical fashion, and that you apply... Uh, all sorts of critical theory like philology, codosology, all those ology words that yeah. you go to doctors <laughs> in the end, but that you do it in a very, you just don't, you know, well, so-and-so said. You go back and you check the sources. 
research, double, oh, triple uh, checking, et cetera, oh, et cetera. It, you know, it, it, it's interesting. The, as the Bollandists have gone forward in time, it takes them longer and longer <laughs> to produce a book because the abilities of scholarship have become so demanding. Oh, sure. So it's a, it's a, it is a tremendous work for the church, but it's tremendously difficult as well. I, when I had the advantage a month ago, I was visiting the Bollandists, and I just was so impressed with it. And I, I want to say about the men who were working as Bollandists, they had two great loves. They had a love of the church, and they had a love of the intellectual life. Oh, wow. Beautiful. And when you ride that twin-wheeled bicycle of love of the church and love of the intellectual life, you're going to go far. That, that was my exact thought, you're going to go far. Well, you know, I saw a wonderful, uh, I think it was an hour-long show with Irini and Father mm-hmm. Mitch, uh, exactly about what we're talking about, the Bollandists. And um, she said, saints are the heroes we need, morally worthy people. And maybe you could just kind of expand on that, certainly with all of your studies. and. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, <clears throat> I teach at Marquette University in the history department, and I work with young people. And I love working with young people. Yeah. But I've learned is you just can't talk. You just can't look somebody in the face and say, are you saved? It's just not yeah. they're going to walk right away. So what you have to do is what Jesuits have been doing now for many years is start from their own experience. So I asked them, I said, what is a society? And and so we talk, and we we agree that a society is a community of persons that have common values and common ways of of interacting and and explaining these values. And that saints, actually, sociologists identify saints as men and women who exemplify a society's values. Fascinating. So if you want to look at a society, a society is basically a system of a set of values and the means to implement those values. So whether you're the stamp club or the Catholic Church, you're going to have values and you're going to have means to implement those values. And within that community, within that society, you're going to have men and women who exemplify those values. So I'll tell you something, Joan. If you want to understand a society, look to its saints. Well, that's what I understand. You can, in, in exploring a saint, whatever age they lived in, you can learn about the clothing, the food, the economy <coughs> of that um, of that particular and, time and, and you place. You can learn, most important, what they value. Yeah. And so, saints, for example. So I'll say, who do you value? And let's look around Milwaukee, and what do we see? We see sports figures. There are saints. We see movie stars. There are saints. We see wealthy people. Those are society's saints. So what those saints tell us is about the values that a group of people want to embrace. And the Catholic Church says, you know, we have a different set of values. We are called to sanctity. And it's not that sanctity is beyond human nature, it's a part of human nature that we often deny. And that the human person is made by God 
to be with God in this life and to be with God eternally in the next. So it's our spiritual nature is not beyond our human nature. It's a part of our human nature. And the desire for sanctity, especially in the 21st century, so many popes, as you know, Joan, have called out for the call to sanctity. And the call to sanctity is to respect our human nature, which is both material and spiritual. And contemporary sanctity fights against that tremendous lie of the 19th century that states we are only material creatures, starting from Darwin to his cousin Galton. And, And so many evils have come about because of that materialism, from eugenics to race. And so, to go back to our point, the call to sanctity and the understanding of sanctity comes uh, that brings us to really what it means to be fully human. Well, I think sometimes sanctity um, can scare us simply because we grew up knowing saints and it's like, oh, um, these amazing people and, and some of them, you know, suffered torture. They were saints because they were martyrs. Um, and others just lived heroic virtues. They did things we don't think we can do. But if we really knew their lives, if we knew their they, lives. they were just like ours. But they just maybe did things a little more heroically. Well, you know, uh, we're all familiar, <clears throat> though it's hard to believe how 20-some years now Mother Teresa's been gone. And certainly Mother Teresa led a heroic life But it's interesting, she never sort of told people, I want you to sell everything and go to Calcutta and help me work with dying lepers. Her great gift to sanctity is, what can you do at this moment to bring about the presence of God? And I'll never forget, I had the opportunity of meeting Mother Teresa uh, in the early 90s. She was at San Gregorio. And uh, she said something that I'll never forget. Uh, you know, she asked me what I was doing, and I said, "Oh, you know, I'm uh, working on my PhD, and I'm in the archives, and sort of feeling kind of bad about not, you know, working in the streets." And she took my hand, I remember, and she said, "Good for you. The church needs smart people." Oh, how wonderful! And I, I just so Teresa. <laughs> I, I, I just sort of got goosebumps, even though I think about it. And she goes, "You work with young people in the United States," she said, "because many of them are the poorest of the poor because they don't know Jesus." Beautiful. And I thought, wow! But very much she ne- and and she said to me, "We depend on you Jesuits to be smart and holy men." And that's sort of been my marching orders. Well, she was a smart and holy woman, so she, she take oh, her yes, words. Yeah, she was <clears throat> very, very both. Now, you know, one of the things as I was exploring the website and, and I was listening mm-hmm. um, to this um, EWTN program, they were talking about the fact that, and, and I think you and I may have even mentioned this briefly on our first meeting, the fact that in studying the lives of saints, there's um, a bit of legend I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of truth, but there's a bit of legend. But sometimes truth, or not sometimes, always truth is more powerful than legend. But how do researchers, how do you know how to separate what in the past we might have a legend says that Saint so-and-so did thus and such? 
Well, that's an interesting question, uh, and it and it refers. It helps us to make a difference in cultures. We can make a division, a very general division between two types of cultures: those cultures that share truth and extend truth by means of what we'll call orality, meaning telling Oral stories, right. and those that put it in print, and. So Western culture tends to be a print culture, and this change occurred around the Renaissance, and and uh, this actually had an effect on our way of thinking because instead of having to memorize things and have the ability to tell a story, now we have a referent culture, and even now uh, people are saying now with search engines and computers we don't even have to know where to look you just google it yeah there it pops up and so in the west we have this print culture but there were many cultures of people who could not read and write who had to maintain a story okay. passed down from passed down by means of a story so i'll give you a little course on form criticism here that there is the way of telling the story and there is the truth of the story. And frequently, the way that stories are told have a similarity. And so what's different is what the kernel of truth is. So, for example, uh, one of the great storytellers is Jesus. And he tells the story of the prodigal son. Now, can you imagine... Um, let's pretend I'm Jesus. It's kind of a stretch, but... <laughs> yeah. And I'm telling the story. Once upon a time, there were two sons. And someone raises their hand and says, Jesus, uh, how tall was the first son? Well, what color was his eyes? And Jesus would say, well, that's not... Important. That's yeah. not important. The, sto the, the truth of the story is that God loves us very much, even though we do something wrong and we're brought back into the Father's love. So basically, the fundamental event of doing a research is how do we look at these forms and we see similarities in forms and then when we look at that form and then when we see something different we can say ah maybe that's what we would call the 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 truth so so we would ask ourselves is the story of the prodigal son true is it true or is it false well, even when I ask the students that, they'll say, well, it's a story with the moral. I said, but is it true or false? And, and you can see they're kind of fidgeting yeah. because even they understand that there is the story and the truth behind the story. That's it for this week with Father Michael Maher. But come back next week for more on the riveting story of tracing the lives of saints. For more information on these stories or to check out Joan's blog and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. <laughs>